Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to Discover Someone Remarkable, conversations worth sharing. Join me as I interview passionate founders and industry experts, people who think differently, challenge the status quo, and are building a legacy. People who I consider truly remarkable. In today's episode, I interview Peter Brennan, an award-winning designer with over 20 years' experience across three continents. He's a keynote speaker and the founder and creative director of Electric and Analog, a brand, content, and design studio based in Sydney, Australia. Peter was introduced to us by mutual friend Craig Black, who appeared on episode three, and I'm very grateful for that introduction. He shares what it's like to go through a business breakup, putting in measures to survive and thrive through a pandemic, the confidence to ask for help from people you admire, going through burnout and discovering your purpose. Whether you're a designer, business owner, or you just love hearing great stories from a creative entrepreneur, there's plenty of takeaways and insights in this episode. I especially love Pete's stories about getting creative to get FaceTime with industry leaders and his productivity hacks. Peter is bright, genuine, and honest, and I found his story motivating and inspiring. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Just a warning, this episode features some colorful language. Well, hey, Pete, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Awesome. <laughs> uh, mate, to kick things off, so we like to ask all of our guests a bit of an icebreaker question, and um, I think you will probably have a pretty good answer for this one, given your background, but what's your favorite brand and why? Mm, this is an interesting one, and uh, it's really a, you know, one of those how long is a piece of string type questions, and I could talk about this for days on end, I really could. I have a few favorite brands, including the obvious ones like Apple. I'm a big fan of Monocle as well, uh, those kind of things. Um, but for me, I think you know brands that resonate deeply and stand for something you believe in is something that kind of allows it to be a favorite brand. And I think you know this should be delivered in a really clear and simple way, which is often really, really hard to execute. You know, we always talk about that kiss analogy of keep it simple, stupid, and that's that's really harder said than done. So there's a number of boxes that I feel like a brand needs to tick to make the, the favorite brand list. You know, the first job is to get the attention of a potential customer. So it needs to be created in a way that gets kind of noticed amidst the noise. And that's what really reels you in. So for me, a lot of that's done on aesthetics, you know, the look and feel, that's kind of the fluffy stuff. But we go super micro and look at things like typography and color palettes and imagery and tone of voice and all that kind of stuff like that. And I fanaticize about this stuff. Like my wife goes mad, we'll go out for dinner at a restaurant clearly before <laughs> pre-coronavirus days. And I'll be like, oh, my God, look at this font on, on a menu. And she just rolls her eyes and just like, oh, my God, you're such a geek. Um, <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff that gets me super excited. So, you know, I think brands have to be different. I think it needs to have meaning. It needs to engage people on an emotional level. And that's what makes people, I feel, become diehard fans of a brand. People love brands because they share the same point of view as they do. And this makes them kind of, this moves them into the aspirational territory. And that's why, you know, people queue for days and spend thousands of dollars on a pair of Yeezys when they're, um, you know, they're made in, in a very similar way that a pair of vans that cost a hundred bucks are made. And that's why, that's why people react to brands that way. To get back to your question, I'm a really big fan of Aesop. I think what they've done in terms of simplicity and the kind of less is more approach is, is really, really well done. I recently discovered MedMen. I was in, I was actually in LA for my best friend's 40th in October. And I don't know if you've heard of MedMen, but it's kind of like, no. it's a strange one. It's kind of like, it's an Apple store for marijuana. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so you kind of, 
it's obviously legal in the states, but you go in there and it's um it's literally like going to an Apple store. There's um there's kind of iPods, iPads with screens that you can kind of explore everything, and then someone comes up and really is really helpful and talks you through it. And they actually they they got my attention even more. They've engaged Spike Jones to do a brand video recently. Oh wow! Called the New Normal. Yeah, it's insane. It's about you know the history of the plant and you know people spending years in jail and now how you know the companies like MedMen are essentially creating a new normal where you can go and do a grocery shop and pick up some marijuana on the way home and it's become kind of accepted <laughs> in certain parts of the land it's pretty nuts check it out when you have a gap it is amazing like the cbd market over in the states has just blown up like i mean I was in New York last year and, and yeah, it's amazing how beautiful some of the brands, aesthetically anyway, are popping up and obviously because it's, it's, it's legal now, they're getting all these yeah. like, you know, big name brand ambassadors and, and it's just becoming a crazy market. I really think once our government sees the amount that they make from it in tax or they are seen and it's sort 100%. of been proven, like I think it's only a matter of time here. Not, not that I'm a big advocate for it, but at the same time, I think, I think it's just a, yeah, it's sort of inevitable. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what it does to everything else, you know, like, um, you know, I've got views on alcohol and cigarettes and things like that. You know, I mean, smoking back in the day, you know, like John Wayne would smoke a cigarette and it was a really cool thing to do, you know, like it was, it was awesome. And I, and I kind of feel like alcohol might go that way as well, you know, like, I mean, you know, we moved over here from London eight years ago and I live in Manly. I go down to the beach in Manly and if someone was having a cigarette on the beach, like you, people were looking at that person like they'd just <laughs> stolen someone's Christmas presents, you know. It's just like, how dare you? It'd be like in the current situation, like <laughs> coughing at the supermarket. It would just be, yeah, yeah 100%, be very frowned 100%. on. So, yeah, and I think there's a delicate ecosystem of things like that. You know, like if CBD thing becomes a thing in Australia, I think it's going to have a kind of a, a, an effect on on other brands and other products within that within where we play in that kind of you know recreational downtime. You know, like having a glass of wine or whatever it is you do when you when you get some downtime. So it's going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, completely. Yeah, no, that, I mean, I just checked uh, MedMan out. It looks, it looks really cool. I'll have to include the link in the show notes. Mate, so looking at the last 12 months, can you share with me the, like a really big highlight from that or you know, maybe one of the biggest challenges? Yeah, for sure. The last 12 months for us as Electric and Analog was a really challenging 12 months, if, if I'm completely honest, for one of the main reasons I had to buy a business partner. It's really not a nice thing to go through. You know, on one hand, you know things aren't right and they have to change. But on the other hand, you're dealing with a human being and it gets incredibly emotional and there's feelings involved. And it was a tricky thing for us to navigate through. You know, that stuff can really take a strain on you from a mental health and emotional well-being point of view. So we had to navigate through that, which is not a very nice experience, but we came out the other end of it and um, everyone's kind of still good friends and, and all in a good place and, and moving forward. Um, I guess a positive thing to come out of that is it kind of made us realize that we needed to change as a business in terms of how we operate and how do we provide real value for the clients that we work with. So, you know, like a lot of young businesses, we the first few years, we just said yes to everything that came our way. We'd, we'd see a brief <laughs> and a dollar sign and a budget attached to it. And we go, yeah, of course we can do that. And we take it on and we'd scratch our heads, but we'd know... I guess we'd know somebody who knew somebody who would be able to deliver it. So we kind of outsource it or bring a freelancer in, which is, you know, is the same thing. But the problem with that is you become like the middleman as a business and you're dealing with the clients kind of, um, you know, you're trying to be empathetic and deal with the clients of how they, what they need and what they want to get done. You're dealing with a supplier who's like charging you by the hour or by the day. And it just becomes messy. And we just got into a place where we just weren't making any margins. So, you know, coming through all of that, it made us realize, all right, we needed to find what we're good at. You know, we're, we're a brand 
design and content agency. We create or reinvent brands. We design things like websites and packaging and products and that kind of thing. And we create content in the form of brand videos or, or photo shoots for lifestyle photography or product photography, wherever it might be. So I guess what that did was allow us to go, all right, like, what are we really good at? Where can we provide actual genuine value to the people we work with? And it was around those three kind of pillars. So what that made us do was actually kind of really double down in that space. And we've a really nice thing to come out of it is we've created a what we call the six-step process to creating an electric brand. And it's six steps over six weeks. What we define as electric brand is a brand that stands out from the crowd, has a diehard fan base, drives sales and business that makes the people that run that company infinitely better. So that was a really positive thing to come out of the negative, I suppose. And it's been a big highlight for the last 12 months. We really defined how we operate as a studio now. And um, yeah, the proof's just in the pudding. Like we've been, the last few months, we've been kind of bringing clients into that process and it's, uh, we're kind of refining as we go, but it's, you know, you come out the other end where you get a really solid return on investment. There's a brand that means something. It stands for something. People are genuinely excited to get out of bed and go to work again. So that's been a really positive thing. So it's been an, an emotional 12 months, but but um, we're feeling good about things going forward. Yeah, I think looking at your site and looking at the work that you do, like it's great to see. I think you guys have really nailed your positioning in terms of a really you know, firm understanding of a focus area of you know, that brand design and, and content. And I think do you find you. like once you've narrowed that focus, I guess it helps makes the work that you do so much more impactful or like it allows you to do so much more impactful work yeah, because you're, only, you're sort of just yeah. only focusing on your strengths and then just doubling down on that. It's not like you're... There's no stuff that's sort of in the peripheral that takes longer that sort of distracts you from the valuable work that you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, as a young business, there's a, it's very easy to become a jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. And that's yeah, just not good for mistake. anybody, you know, yeah. like you, yeah, I think a lot of people do. And I, and I think it's something you have to go through in the early days and figure out the hard way because, you know, you, you kind of have these, have these gut feels about things and you think it's the right thing to do at the time. And then, you know, you get halfway through and you're like, we shouldn't have done this as a company, man. We're like, we've, we've taken someone's money and we, we had some horror stories a few years ago. You know, we had a client, we did a rebrand piece of work for and they said, oh, we need some PR work done. And we went, yeah, okay, we'll do that. No problem. We outsourced it to a, a PR agency we'd never worked with before and it would just become a headache. And we actually had to give a client a, a refund on a pretty large piece of money for us that really, really hurt, particularly when you're, um, you know, as a, as a creative person, I get nosebleeds from Excel spreadsheets and anything <laughs> to do with finance. So um, yeah. it's uh, when you get paid an amount of money, it's almost been spent on something, you know, that you needed like a new camera or, or something like that that you need within the business. So to give money back like that uh, really hurts. And it's something, I don't know, I think learning the hard way sometimes is, is often the best way to learn because you learn it the real hard way <laughs> like you know what I mean it's not someone telling you it's actually you experiencing the negative experience of doing the wrong thing and that teaches you not to do that ever again <laughs> yeah yeah it's like touching a hot plate or a hot frying pan like it, totally. it's, it's mentally scarring and it's hard to go through but you yeah. sort of don't make that bloody awful mistake again exactly you've come out of of buying out a business partner and then smack bang March hits and, and we go into isolation and lockdown. Um, so it's timing hasn't been great. Fuck, it's surreal, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> How is um, electric and analog coping through isolation and all this COVID-19 stuff? Yeah, it's been interesting. You know, the first thing that I did personally, like when I, like I, I watch the news every morning and every night before I go to bed just to keep on top of the world, I always have. And, you know, when it started becoming pretty evident, we're like, 
okay, like this is, we need to kind of plan for this, but how do you plan for that? No one knew how big it was going to be. No one knew the impact it was going to have. Yes, people have been talking about another recession coming for years, et cetera, et cetera. But so we, in all honesty, we didn't know what to do. So we, what I did as a tactic is I went onto LinkedIn and I just started researching people who are more experienced than me in running a business, more experienced than me, particularly running a creative business, people who, who are older than me. You know, I call those kind of people like virtual mentors. They don't know me from a bar of soap, but I, but I feel like there's people out there that you know, they don't have to know who you are, but you can learn something from them either directly or, or through the content or, you know, whether that's written or video, whatever they put out. And I reached out to six people and there were people like Chris Savage, who's kind of an old school industry guy. There's, um, there's a guy named Nick Parker who's run an agency called Light Creative um, in Brisbane for nearly 20 years now. And I just hit them up and I said, hey guys, like, you don't know me. I don't know you. I'm, I run a creative agency. We're into year four. Obviously we're concerned. Could we get on a video call for 10, 15 minutes to, you know, just pick your brain about some questions? And they all, said yes. And I had uh, over an hour long call with every single one of those people. And interestingly enough, they all said the same thing. They said, if you can, if you can get your costs down and provide value throughout this time, however long that's going to be, and you'll come out the other end. And it was quite interesting because none of these people were, in, were kind of interlinked with each other in any way, but they all said the same thing. And, you know, providing value is however you want to define that. Is it actually doing free work for people? Is it doing reduced cost work for people? Is it creating content that you share on social that provides value to your community and your audience? It's probably all of those and more. There's no kind of rule on like, yes, do this and don't do that. I think it's all just how do you provide value holistically? But all everyone I spoke to said the same thing. They said they'd done that. And they said the interesting thing that happened was their competition went out of business for the most part um, because they hadn't done that. And they said when this whole thing becomes over, um, you know, ends and, and is over, they said it really just overnight things change. People start spending again. And if you're the business that provided value to them through the downtimes, then they start spending with you. And, um, you know, each person I spoke to said that the next three or four years after every downturn they had were the most lucrative few years they'd had as a business. So I think, you know, now's really a time to survive now and then thrive out the other end of it. That can be quite tricky. Like we had to go pretty micro. Like we literally, I went to our accountant and just said, hey, can we just have a print out of every single thing that we spend? And, you know, <laughs> something as simple as making a spreadsheet of like, you know, like subscriptions to things that you probably haven't used in a while. And oh, they're like man, those, direct, those directive subscriptions, oh, they're the killers. Dude, yeah, those are killer. <laughs> they're absolute killers. And, and just doing that exercise and going like, hey, like I haven't used that software for like months but i'm paying like 12 dollars a month for it like you can save hundreds of dollars you yeah. know which ends up being thousands of dollars so we did that yeah and we've just been kind of adjusting day to day but it, it feels good it's a hard one for me because i feel like if there's ever a time to do a rebrand and rebrand your business it's now it's yeah. like the world's in hibernation like now's the time to like focus but if you were to go out and say that you just come across as a really sleazy salesman <laughs> and like a hard sell yeah. so so it's tricky how to deliver that but at the same time there's been companies who i think have realized that and you know we've put stuff out on linkedin for example some content and someone's commented it and we just you know chatted back and built up a bit of rapport and then there's a conversation that gets started and you know next thing you know we're getting a brief and discussing budgets and putting proposals together so um we're actually the business we've been in a while touch wood I, I really hope that doesn't go away i feel really grateful that we are but yeah it's an it's certainly an interesting time for sure yeah i think that's right like it's something that we heard as well is 
that idea of, oh, people will use this time to look at their brand and refocus. And um, it was in the first few weeks, I was sort of thinking, yeah, right, that's beautiful to hear you say that, but I don't, I don't know if it's true. But it's actually coming into fruition as it moves forward. So it is positive that those things are happening. And it's cool that, um, that LinkedIn is somewhere that um, you're able to pick up some work or build some rapport. Has that been a trend for you guys to get work through LinkedIn? I mean, I know as designers or in the design community, we often try to avoid things like LinkedIn and, and gear towards more things like Instagram or Behance. But what's your sort of yeah. social media of, of choice for building brand and for your for your studio, not for um, for other brands? Yeah, cool. You know, for us, Instagram is great for showing the work that we do and starting conversations, getting noticed, as is Behance. We're, we're active on both of them. We don't have a huge following on Instagram at the moment purely because I look at it as it takes a lot of work. And when we're kind of working on projects and stuff like that, you know, as a small team to have somebody doing that full time is kind of tricky. So we're trying to automate stuff. So there's a lot of tools like later.com is fantastic. If anyone's listening yeah. to this and wants to, um, you know, look at how to perfect the Instagram game, later.com is, is amazing. So things like that. So, but LinkedIn's been a, been a really good place for us in a previous life. And I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit. I, I worked in recruitment, believe it or not. So I kind of got in on LinkedIn in the early days because of that yeah. and managed to get you know a little bit of a following in there but it's um i feel like it's had a bit of resurgence the last few months you know it's really starting to pop at the moment so and just being honest i feel like you know people talk about there's a thing like mark ritson did this thing did you see that what mark ritson did the other day about all the brands sounding the same it's amazing Oh, no, I have to check it out. I do like his stuff. I think he's pretty brilliant at standing out on there. And I mean, he's like marketing MBA course, and I think he's doing a branding MBA course. Like yeah. it's, it's really, really smart stuff, and it's a really clever it's epic. course. And there's a few people I know who have gone through it and got a lot out of it. But yeah, no, what was he saying? Yeah, no, he's great, man. He did this kind of like amalgamation of brand videos, like adverts in the last couple of weeks, and it was like big brands like, you know, I don't want to name anybody, but like really big household name brands. But it was like, and I think it was titled something like COVID wank. Yeah. Because he was saying like, it's all COVID wank. And it's every brand saying the same thing. Like, we're here for you. We'll get yeah. through this together. You know, we all that kind of stuff. And and it's interesting because, you know, I mean, like, I think everybody's got emails the last few weeks from businesses. You know, I, oh I think God, I've flown. so bad. Some of them are so bad. A couple of airlines bad. I've flown once. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like a fly, I've flown on an airline once for some crazy time months and years ago. And it's like, you know, we're here for you. We've been thinking about you. Here's what like, we're really? doing. And I think everyone's just jumped on that. Yeah, it's <laughs> mad. It's mad. So I think just being honest. Sorry, I got one from a toll company the other day. Like you drive through the tunnels <laughs> yeah, it's and it's mad. like, here's what we're doing for COVID. I'm like, Matt, like that, this did not need to be an email. I, yeah, I ain't driving through no tunnels anytime soon. <laughs> that's for sure. Matt, you mentioned recruitment. Maybe take me back to how you got into design in the first place and your story of, because yeah, yeah c- going from recruitment to design is probably not a, a career path that many designers I know would have, would have taken. So can you take me back there and explain that? Yeah, it was more design into recruitment and then back into design, to be honest, and recruiting for the design industry at the same time. But it's still it's still a bit of a weird one. <laughs> so, I mean, God, to take you, to take you all the way back, I... Uh, you know, I always liked art at school. I was I was a kid drawing with crayons and all that kind of stuff. And then I, I finished school and I did a graphic design course for, I was born in England and I moved to South Africa when I was nine, 10 years old. 
So I lived in South Africa up until my early 20s and I moved back to London for about 10 years and I've been in Australia and Sydney for eight years now. So I have a weird accent, which is probably annoys people listening, which is, uh, I can't help it. It is what it is. But um, so I finished school in South Africa. I joined a college called Media Tech and studied graphic design. And then I had, my first job was at a company called International Concept Organization in Durban, which used to work with like the Mr. Price Group, which I, I guess is like a retail fashion brand in South Africa. It's kind of the, I'd say it's like kind of South Africa's equivalent to H&M. So working on campaigns like that, they had a sister business, a sister agency called International Trend Institute. So was always looking at kind of trend trends coming up and working with people like Lee Edelkurt, who is a, a Dutch trend forecaster who's extremely well known. So that was kind of my, I guess, introduction into kind of, you know, advertising and design in the creative industry. I left ITI and ICO and I, I moved to London because my Friends were going over there. My little brother had moved over and like obviously my I had family there, my grandparents and cousins and things like that. So I moved over to London and then initially got a job for an experiential marketing agency called RPM where I was essentially a team leader going out into the field and, you know, looking after teams that were giving out free Strongbow cider and Lipton iced tea samples and we were doing stuff at music festivals and train stations. And it was kind of just one of those like, you know, you're 21 years old, you've just left home for the first time, you're kind yeah. of exploring yourself, having fun, one of those things. And then a year or two, like it wasn't very long really, I got approached by Quicksilver in South Africa. I kind of got a headhunt call from a guy named Greg Swart who I'd worked with when he was at Mr. Price and I was at ICO and he'd moved over to Quicksilver and said, hey, there's a kind of like art director design kind of role going, like would you want to come and check it out? And it, it kind of just piqued my interest. I, I grew up surfing as a kid. I competed and was sponsored as a junior and stuff like that. So it really kind of interested me. So I flew over and had had a meeting with with Arthur and Boris, who was the license holder at the time, and Barry Wallens, and got a job there and worked there for about, I think it was about four or five years. So we did, you know, designing everything from, you know, magazine adverts and install point of sale stuff to creating events like the Quicksilver Good Wave and the Hometown Hero Bus Tour and some other stuff that we did, you know, producing all the catalogs that our agents would sell from. So doing shoots with all our athletes and and talent and stuff like that and, and essentially being the art director at Quicksilver. I then kind of moved back to the UK and it was a weird one for me. I stumbled, I basically, I moved over with my best friend and our girlfriends at the time and we found a flat in Wimbledon that was this beautiful flat and we paid the deposit and we'd, we'd all had a bit of money saved up so we didn't need to get a job. And I'd, and I'd kind of met with a recruitment agency called Major Players in Covent Garden who recruit, uh, recruit to the creative industry. And I'd had a couple of interviews and nothing really come to it. And then it was a week before we were supposed to move into our apartment in, in Wimbledon. And the agent phoned me up, the estate agent said, oh, you need to come fill out these like final forms. And we, like I said, we'd already paid the deposit. So uh, the job details on the form, I put NA, like not applicable. And the lady was like, what do you mean? Not? I was like, I don't have a job yet. Like I just kind of moved <laughs> over from South Africa. And she was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. She's like, "You, there's no landlord in London that's going to give you anybody like a, a year's tenancy agreement without proof of income every month. So she's, she's like, you need to get a job in the next 48 hours or you're going to lose this, your deposit and everything. And I was just like, oh, my God. So um, I remember grabbing the Evening Standard newspaper on the tube on the way home, and there was a job saying, like, junior recruitment consultant, no experience needed, like, starts straight <laughs> away. I think the salary was, like, 16,000 pounds a year, yeah. which is, like, peanuts, you know? Like, I think, like, if you work at McDonald's, you get more than that. There's, like, a, like a you know, like, clearing tables and stuff. So... So I just I applied and it was really funny because it was a it was a, a company called Selectra that 
recruited to like the, the big four management consultancy firms like Deloitte's and PwC and Accenture and KPNG. And I remember rocking up in like a pair of jeans and a T-shirt and I opened the door and like everybody was on the phone, like with like those, you know, the, those headsets, those, microphones, yeah, but everyone headset. was suited and booted. Yeah, like everyone <laughs> was in suits. And I walked in with, like jeans and a T-shirt like for a job interview and like the whole place just like went silent. Like you could hear a pin drop like as I walked into the room. Like everyone was like talking away, like cold calls and like dealing with clients and candidates. And then it was just like I walked in and it's like it literally felt like time. So like everyone just stared at me. And I was like, oh, my God, like what have I done? And I remember the guy, like the manager's name was Will. He came and grabbed me. He took me to like a boardroom. And he's like, oh, so you're here for the interview. I was like, yeah. He goes, can you do me a favor? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. And he goes, can you just leave here? go buy yourself a suit and come back first thing in the morning. I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't know how to take it. Like I walked out and I was just like, what just happened? So I, I like literally went downstairs. <laughs> it's so bad. Went to I went downstairs to River Island. Yeah, exactly. I went to River Island. It was like one up from Primark, you know, and I, I think I spent like a hundred pounds on the, on the first suit I'd ever owned. <laughs> and I went back in the morning and like everyone just laughed at me and they, they ended up giving me a job. But it was like, it was like good training and it was, but it was like an industry I didn't really understand. And I lasted there a few months and I phoned up my recruiter at major players. I was just like, dude, you need to get me a job as soon as possible. Like I can't do this anymore. I'm wearing a suit for the first time in my life. Like bear in mind, I came from working at a surf brand. Like, you know, I'd go, <laughs> I go for a surf in the morning. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd like walk into my office in a wetsuit. Sometimes I get changed at my desk, you know, now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm wearing <laughs> suits and booted all the way. And uh, yeah, I spoke to my recruitment agent, who's a guy named Tim Sternberg, who's become one of my really good friends. And he said, look, like there's nothing, there's no relevant roles for you at the moment right now, but if you want to come and work for us and like doing recruitment, like I'm happy to kind of give that a go. Like we'll give it a trial for a month or so. And um, and I went in and and six years later, I left the business. It was one of those things where Jack Gratton is the guy who started the, started Major Players. He was the founder. He just created like an amazing culture of people. Like everyone was really good friends. It was very much an – I remember my interview with Jack was like my third interview and he said – I'll never forget. He said to me, Hey, if you're like, if you're hungover in the morning, don't phone in sick. He says, phone your boss and say you're hungover and come in at like 11 o'clock and you can make it up like the next day or, or later that week. And I just thought that was so refreshing, you know, like, cause the amount of times I'd phoned in and pretended I was sick when I just was hungover or whatever, you know, as a, as an early 20 year old, something. He, he knew so, his audience, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And it was just, it was also for, you know, having a, and a young early career in the creative industry, like, I mean, I'm sure you you know, as, as well as everybody else, like, you know, the hours we work sometimes in, in the creative industry are, are, are nuts. Like I was working, you know, through the night to hit deadlines, like literally working all nighters till eight o'clock in the morning and going home for a few hours and coming back for the pitch or whatever it might be and still getting, you know, your fixed salary at the end of the month. And all of a sudden you're in a sales role, like in the recruitment industry. And I was taught like, you know, there's a phone, there's a computer, there's a warm list of leads. This is your targets for the month, you know, and for a creative and a designer, like I'd never been exposed to that before. I didn't know. I didn't know how to cold call. Like I, I sat with my headphones on in silence designing things <laughs> in my career to that point, you know? So it was like, it was like thrown in the deep end, but like just a team of really helpful people that helped get things over the line and kind of trained you up. And, and ultimately what ended up happening is, started, you know, being a consultant to businesses that were, that, you know, bear in mind our clients were creative agencies. So essentially getting jobs for the, like, you know, the people that like the kind of jobs that I would go for myself as a designer sometimes. And it just gave me a whole new perspective on like, you know, the harder you work, you can actually earn more money because obviously there's a commission structure and, you know, the, the salary, the base salary wasn't great, but you could make three, four, five times your monthly salary if you had a really good month. So it kind of, 
I guess it kind of like in hindsight, like now running a branding agency, it's kind of allowed me to understand how to like build relationships with people on the phone, like get in front of people in person and have a conversation and just try and like genuinely add value and help people out by, you know, providing them with something that they need. And as a designer before stumbling to recruitment, I would never have ever experienced that before. So yeah, it was a, it was an interesting one. So from there, I kind of, uh, I met my now wife in London, who who was weirdly born in South Africa, moved to Sydney when she was 10 years old. So we met and kind of moved in together pretty quickly. And then my grandfather passed away. He was my hero growing up. He was in England. And that was kind of the, the catalyst for me to, to leave England. I'd always wanted to kind of just get back to somewhere warm and by the ocean and be able to jump in and go for a surf and go to work and stuff like that. And obviously it's hard to do that in London. So, you know, Pops passing away was kind of the catalyst for me to kind of realign, I guess, and recalibrate what I wanted to do. So we, my wife, now wife and I traveled around the States for about four or five months, did a bit of a road trip and That's awesome. um, kind of, yeah, spent all our inheritance money, much to the dismay of like my brother and my uncle and people are going like, we should invest this money. I'm like, now nah, I'm going on a road trip. So um, <laughs> we kind of did that and then um, settled back in Sydney and got a job through uh, a friend of a friend who uh, worked for a media agency. So kind of went in there as a, I guess, like a digital producer and progressed to kind of a, a director of innovation position, which is essentially was the ideas guy you know i'd be wheeled in for a pitch and we'd kind of collate a bunch of ideas that would hopefully get something over the line and we'd win the work um and the frustrating thing was often you know more often than not clients wouldn't actually go with those big ideas so i became this kind of creative with a portfolio of work that had never seen the light of day and it was just a big frustration point so my wife was pregnant with our little boy our second child and um, i was like right i'm gonna quit and start my own thing and started electric and analog four years ago and here we are wow how um Man, that's a, that's a great journey. How do you think the, you talked about being able to sell your work and, and build quick rapport and relationships. How else do you think your background mm. in recruitment and sales has helped you as an agency leader? You know, it's so important. Like you ask people if they're into sales and a lot of people go, no, not really. And there's a few people I've been kind of gaining so much value from recently. Uh, Blair Enns. Yeah, And I absolutely. think, were you and I talking about him the other day on email? We were, yeah, right? Yeah, he's brilliant. We did a course, I did a course down in Sydney with him and um, David yeah, C. Baker. Awesome. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah, his, epic. his work's really good. So him, and there's another guy named Errol Gerson as well, who's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. all through. We've listened uh, to Did you get his... that stuff through the future with Chris Doe? We yes. listen to a lot of the same yeah. stuff, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, so so what Chris is doing with the future, I mean, I think those guys are just providing so much value. It's incredible. So oh, if completely. You, if you are a creative, yeah, if you're a creative and you'll be living under a rock and you don't know what the future is without an <laughs> E on the end of it, yeah. then Google it because it will literally change your life. But um, yeah, I think like, you know, something that Errol Gerson said is like everyone's selling, like you're always selling. And when you think about that, like you are, and I, I think as creatives, we don't really have that at the front of our mind. And I think the minute we do understand that, I think it changes everything. You know, like I've worked with, you know, slightly more junior creators in my time where, you know, they just go, I don't really understand the business side of things. And I don't know if I need to, I'm a designer. And it's like, you do, like, if you understand that, like you become a lot more empathetic as a, as a designer. And I think it opens up your work to a whole new kind of realm of thinking that you wouldn't have thought about if you didn't understand the fundamentals of sales and, and what people need and how you can provide value. So I think it's really, really important to understand sales um, and be a salesman as much as it is to be a designer. Yeah, completely. And I, I think like it's hard as you, you know, you see junior designers and they, they might do beautiful work, but they're terrible at explaining or showcasing or, or, like, mm. or selling it. And, um, and you know, sure. you understand, like it, it might feel uncomfortable to sort of like 
feel like you're selling the concept, but at the same time, sometimes it just needs explaining to, to yeah, the Yeah, for so. sure. And I think that's experience as well, you know. Like, I mean, love him or hate him, I'm a huge Gary Vaynerchuk fan, as polarizing <laughs> as he is. I, I love him. And, you know, he said something the other day. He's like, you, you didn't know how to drive at one point, you know, but you figured it out. Like, So <laughs> I think, you know, there's those things when people go like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to do that. And it's like, you figure it out. Like, you, you know, you can Google stuff. You can ask people. You can go on YouTube. There's so much free content like you can pretty much learn how to do anything with the technology that we're gifted with in this day and age. So I don't think there should ever be an excuse. Yeah, completely. There's always a video of a 12 year old kid explaining something on YouTube. That's got like 200,000, <laughs> 200,000 views, you know, how to reformat Amazing. a hard drive or something like that. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Mate, talking about your industry or I guess our industry for a second, what are some things or challenges that you think we face and what are some frustrations? Look, I think all industries have challenges. I think the creative industry is, has always been rife with them. You know, whether that's, you know, challenging a client on, on having an in-house agency, I, I don't know, you know, I can understand how that takes costs down, but I, I don't understand how that can get access to the most creative minds unless you're paying them an absolute fortune, which I can't see it being cost effective. I think I get frustrated with full service agencies. I really feel oh, yeah, like I, I can, I can <laughs> like I can see how they've got there. But I feel like it's like an Olympic athlete doing like all sports. It just doesn't like it's, uh, you know, imagine like Usain Bolt, like, you know, doing high jump. Like yeah. he'd actually probably be quite good at high jump, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> you know, do, doing, doing, doing something that's not his remit, you know, that's yeah. a, bad, a bad analogy. No, no, I completely agree. We were having this conversation the other day. I completely my, I'm, yeah. I share the exact same sentiments on this. Yeah. I think you just have a team who are like really geared to one thing and then they do a few other things quite Okay. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But then I also understand it from the client's perspective is like, you know, it would be really probably painful if it's not managed properly to have eight different agencies or four different agencies that are specialist unique boutique businesses that are really good at what they do trying to work. And I've been on the receiving end of that as well. Like I've worked in agencies where we've, you know, we've had to partner with other agencies, which are essentially competitors. And it's just, sometimes it gets a bit shitty, you know, there's some egos involved and there's some personalities that clash and think they should be, you know, something should fall into their remit, not the other agencies. So I can understand it. I just think there needs to be a solution to that. And I think, for me, it's one of those conversations that just goes around in circles year after year. But I think there's a solution. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure we'll find it eventually. I think how we charge is, is a frustration and a challenge as well. You know, we initially did kind of the time brace, you know, pricing model, like I think most young agencies or, or creatives do. And it, it didn't work for us, you know, like we, you kind of include two rounds of changes and revisions in a brief and then, and that's how you cost and, and, you know, estimate that this is going to take us, call it a hundred hours, but then the client changes their mind or there's three decision makers at the client and you haven't established who the one decision maker is and made that very clear in the early days because you don't understand that. So you've got three people that all have an opinion and you end up doing six round of changes. So you've estimated a job to take you a hundred hours. It takes you 196 hours and you're out of pocket. And then if you give the client another invoice, that's, you know, almost double the, the initial cost estimate, there's a huge disconnect there. So, so, you know, value-based pricing is obviously getting a lot of heat at the moment. I think some people who don't understand exactly how it works think it's not right. But I mean, the underlying concept is, you know, if I can do something for you that can provide X amount of value, then, you know, a small percentage of whatever that could be should be worth being paid to the person who provides that value. You know, the trick and I guess the disconnect there is, you know, if you go and create a brand for a, a small little coffee shop that makes them sell another hundred coffees a day 
or you go and rebrand Netflix, which, you know, gets them millions of more subscribers every month. You know, you're almost doing the same thing for both businesses. But, you know, if you follow the value-based pricing method, you're charging a bigger company a lot more money than a smaller company, but you're essentially doing the same thing. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of experimentation going on with that at the moment. And I think I think it's the future of how we need to work as an industry. We've made a decision to stay away from pitches as well. Yeah. You know, I've, I've worked in businesses where we've just gone pitch after pitch after pitch and it's, it's just soul destroying, you know, you're uh, completely, you're doing this thing at arm's length. You have no idea. And it's like yeah, just made, made up brief. For sure. or, yeah. It's, it's just a situation fraught with so much danger and disappointment. hundred yeah, percent, man. And it's soul destroying. Like, you know, I've worked on, on teams where, you know, we haven't gone to sleep in like three days to, to you know, really over deliver on a pitch. And it's like months and months of work. And the agency spends so much money on creating, making things and setting up things and, you know, doing all this theater and stuff like the old Mad Men days. And, uh, and then it doesn't come off and you just wasted 200 grand and, you know, three or four months of people's time for nothing to show for it. I read something pretty interesting. I think it was a Blair Ends thing where he was saying like, you know, if you go to a mechanic or a dentist, you don't like get three dentists to like pitch to you and tell you who's going to make your teeth the best, you know, like you go on like the rapport, like your view of them, like what their brand stands for. Like you go because your, your best friend said, Hey, I went to this mechanic and he was so good at fixing my car. So it's word of mouth referrals. And I think that's how we need to operate. I think, you know, I, I know, I know there'll be people listen to this and go like, that's so wrong because there's such an industry around the whole pitch process. And I think there's, I think there are, probably times where it's worth doing. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it's just a broken model that I just don't believe in. Completely agree. I think it's, yeah, no other industry I think would work in a similar way where you'd give away so much work, IP, you know, creative effort. It's mad. And it could just mm. end up on the cutting room floor. I think it's also like it's a situation that's unfair because there's a complete imbalance of um, informational power in the sense that I've been in situations 100%. where the client was never going to go, like they were never going to go, with, we were the incumbent and we're, they were never going to go with the incumbent. Like it was just a formality and it would have been yeah, better. It would have been better that. if they just said, look, mate, like to be honest, just dial, you know, phone this in, don't bother putting in the effort into it. This is at my previous job. And um, yeah, yeah it's it's just like, you'd rather them just be honest and go, look, to be honest, we've got someone new on board who has a friend who runs a creative agency, their mates, they've always wanted to work together. Like, this is going to happen sort of thing. Like don't, it doesn't matter matter what your work is going to be. Like it's not going to happen. I'd rather the honesty there and not have the pain and suffering. Well, that said, and I think, you know, I don't know. I feel like I have an opinion on things or I have a point of view, should I say. And and that's never, I never say things to be arrogant or be contriving or something. It's just what I believe in. But, you know, that means, you know, who did it really well. Have you heard of Snask, an agency out of Sweden? Yeah, yeah. We saw them at the uh, design conference last year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. cool. Yeah, they were great. Yeah, like they, I mean, their whole thing's amazing, man. Like they're, you know, their book's called Make Enemies and Gain Fans. And it's, their whole perspective is like, if you stand for something you believe in, there will be people that really back you and believe in you. They become your fans. And of course, there's going to be people that think you're an idiot and completely disagree with what you're saying. But that's kind of where you want to be. You don't want to be in the middle where you're trying to please everybody because then you're just beige and you're not really, you don't really mean anything to anybody. You just, you're not really spoken about or noticed or no one really gives a shit you know what i mean so i think it's important to have a point of view and stand behind it and i think in the pitch process it's pretty you know it's pretty evident to see that like you you kind of only want to be working with good human beings that are aligned with you you know and it's um 
you know, as an agency, you go through a pitch and you've got like particularly more junior creatives that aren't so thick skinned that haven't been through that before that are just, you can see they're broken. Like, I mean, I've worked with guys that had to go and see psychologists because they were just like so physically and mentally exhausted after like years and years of working on pitches that it just broke their personality like completely. And that's not a good thing. Like we shouldn't be encouraging that as, a, as an industry at all. Yeah. I think, I mean, Blair Enns has a great book, Win Without Pitching, that I think sort of kickstarted yeah. his career. And that's, yeah, such a valuable read for anyone sort of who believes in sort of what we're saying here. I think it'd be a good reference. Yeah, for sure. You spoke at Pause Fest earlier this year, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, to pull something you said there, I want you to tell a story about how you booked a meeting with a guy by sending him something that was quite creative. I'd love you to tell that story because I thought that was just brilliant in terms of how to book a meeting with someone who's extremely type or in a key decision-making role. So can you, can you take me back and tell <laughs> yeah. me what was that about and why you did that? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, like back to the mental thing, like, I don't know, I've been, I've been brought up, you know, my grandfather, my dad died when I was 11 years old. My grandfather, my mom's side was kind of like my father figure growing up amongst other people, like my best friends, dad and bosses and things like that. But my granddad was kind of the ultimate and and he always just taught me to respect your elders and you can learn from people. So I guess I've always had this kind of view that like, you know, if you find something really tricky and hard to do, there's somebody out there who's done it before and got the experience. And if, you know, you could probably have a coffee with them or a lunch and learn more about how to fix the problem that you're facing than if you were to go and do a 12 month course at a college or something <laughs> like that. That's, that's my view on things. Yeah. So, you know, and it's weird because growing up and well, growing up in my twenties in London and working at major players, like one of our clients was naked communications. And, you know, they back in the day were the, were like the rocks, the ultimate rock star creative agency. They went against the grain. They were just cool as fuck, like really good stuff, really good work, really good clients, amazing people that were running it. And one of the people who used to run naked over here is a guy named Mike Wilson, who is currently, I think he just been promoted to the chairman at, at Havis. Australia. And so we wanted to pick his brain and we wanted to kind of like, you know, just get his advice as someone who'd run an agency like Naked back in the day. Like, you know, how do you run a creative agency? Like, what are the cool things that you can do? And like, how do you get attention of bigger brands and all those kind of questions? So we started like trying to get his attention, like Adam on LinkedIn, nothing, like send him an email to the website, nothing. And like, you know, obviously like he, the guy's really, really busy, he's super senior. He's running a, you know, tens of hundred of people business. So we decided to get creative and like figure out how to get his attention. And it's interesting because, I mean, we, we create brands and it's all about getting people's attention. So you kind of have to take some of that learning that you've done in creating brands over the years and apply it to the day-to-day stuff. So what we did was we first just went onto LinkedIn and kind of tried to find some mutual connections. And I found there was a guy named Seamus Higgins that I'd gone to school with who – I think he's the ECD at RGA at the moment. He's such a good dude. And and I hadn't spoken to him in years. And ironically, he was in, we grew up together in South Africa, went to school and we went to the same design school together as well after high school. He now lives in Sydney and he was working at Host for Mike. So I just hit him up and I was like, hey, like really would love to pick Mike's brain, like take him for lunch or dinner or drink or something just to get some advice. And Shay was like, hey, you've got to go through his PA. Like she's the gatekeeper. She runs everything. So we hit her up and she said, look, Mike's really busy. And like, you know, like maybe like in a few months time, there might be an opportunity, but right now he's, his calendar's kind of booked. So we put the phone down a little bit kind of uh, disheartened. And then we thought, okay, like, let's think outside the box here. So we phoned her back in a couple of days and we said like, Hey, like, what does he love? Like, we just want to send him something to get his attention. He's like, Oh, it's easy. He loves Chelsea football club. 
and he loves like there was this whiskey that he loved and we were like oh my god like we can't fly him to Chelsea to Stamford Bridge to watch his favorite team play and we can't afford that the whiskey was like two grand a bottle we're like oh so um so we said what does he hate and she goes oh he hates tomatoes and we're like what like what do you mean and she goes no he just fucking hates tomatoes like he doesn't he can't stand the sight of them so we're like Perfect. Like we can afford some tomatoes. So we went downstairs to the coffee shop and in our office, in our co-working space. And we just said, Hey, like, can we buy like a few hundred tomatoes? And the guy was like, his name was George. He was like, we knew him because we bought coffee every day, you know? And he was like, what do you want like hundred tomatoes for? And we told him the story. He's like, Oh, amazing. Love it. So he gave us, I think it was like eight boxes of tomatoes or nine boxes of tomatoes. And I think there were 782 tomatoes in total. And we literally just got in an Uber with these boxes of tomatoes and we rocked up at Havis's offices and we went up the lift and we said, we got delivery for Mike Wilson. And uh, we got there and he wasn't there annoyingly. So we just left like 782 box tomatoes at his desk and we left and we just thought this would be really cool. And we'd organized for Oz Harvest to come at like 6 p.m. and collect them so they could be used and stuff and weren't put to waste. But the very next morning, we got an email from his PA going, Mike thought that was the funniest thing. How are you guys fixed for like a lunch on Friday afternoon to meet up with him? So, so uh, yeah, cool. it definitely worked. And I think just getting, you know, thinking differently to get people's attention can have real benefits sometimes. Right. That's brilliant. And how was the lunch? Yeah, it's mad, man. Like, you know, people who've, like I said, people who've done that, done things that you're trying to do just uh open up like a whole new realm of thinking you know like you, it makes you change your perspective and and honestly like we've done similar things i did that with ed pixar who founded i mean sorry ed catmull who founded pixar he was at web summit a few years ago we had a 3d photo app called viewpop that we were my brother and i had done as a business so we were there and we just wanted to meet ed, ed catmull and we had a very similar thing with him we tweeted and the person who'd written his book had picked up the tweet and we kind of sweet talked her into giving us his email address and he was he emailed us back and said oh i'm too busy i'm I'm gonna go to the airport so we just rocked up the airport and we kind of messaged him in real time and we're on the way there and we ended up like picking ed catmull's brain for like 20 minutes before he boarded a flight in dublin back to san francisco and you know just like those little nuggets of wisdom where you can ask questions and you've got to be prepared like you can't rock up and you know ask them how their family is and what they're up to (laughs) you've got to go like hey these are the three things i'm really battling with like can you help me do this this and this and then they go you know they're pretty rushed as well and and yeah, like people enjoy helping people, I find, for the most part. So, um, yeah, it's good. I mean, the lunch with Mike was great. He gave us some really good insight and just about being brave. You know, they had – I probably won't do the story justice, but they had an opportunity to pitch for I think it was Coca-Cola back in the early days of Naked, and they got asked to fill out like a 200-page RFP. And they were just like, we don't know how to do this. Like, this is crazy. So what he told us they did is they they – had this beautiful cover page made of this book of like 200 pages and then they had a corner they got an illustrator to get a like a pencil illustration of you know when you flick like the corner of a book and yeah, it's like, yeah, the it looks like a little animation yeah yeah and, it, and he did that with like a little dude like running 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 and we got to the end of the flick you get to like a vending machine and he put some money in and a can of coke came out and then the, <laughs> the end page said we're going to do more of this for you. And they submitted it. And um, he said within a few days, they got a call and he was, they were actually at the pub and he just said, oh shit, here we go. We're going to get let down lightly. And the, and the client of Coke was like, this is the bravest thing we've ever received. Like you guys have won the work. So, you know, that's how they won a big client like Coca-Cola. So, you know, just hearing stories like that from someone who's done it, it really changes everything for you. You know, it's like, it gives you a whole new perspective on how to approach business, I feel. 
Yeah, that's so cool. I love those stories. I love those stories of people just daring to take a risk or think outside the box and seeing it pay off. I mean, I'm sure there's probably a few stories down the track of people who have just bombed miserably <laughs> in those things. Oh, but, I've, um, I've, but but they're, more, you know, they're not the ones More than the successful ones. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mate, that's cool. So back to electric and analog, what mm. sort of stuff do you guys, I know your focus is branding, design and content, but what sort of industry or, or client is something that you guys really love to I guess, sink your teeth into or get cracking and working on. Yeah. I mean, we were, yeah, we're, we're a brand content and design studio and we haven't, um, you know, I'm actually, we've been, there's been so much talk about niching at the moment and we really are kind of trying to figure that out. I think it's something that has immense value because you end up becoming kind of, you know, a minority of people that can service a particular niche quite well. I mean, as things stand, we, you know, our, I guess our elevator pitch is we transform brands to drive sales and make people and companies better. So we do everything from brand strategy and creating brands through to designing things like packaging and products and websites. And we create videos and do photo shoots and all that kind of stuff. Our typical client at the moment is kind of the, the ambitious owner who runs a challenger brand. So I don't think I don't think we'd be able to add value to the Nikes and the Apples and the Googles and those kind of companies, but the companies we're going after are, you know, potentially fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth on the rung of brands in their industry that, you know, the brand probably needs a bit of love and needs some creative kind of injection into what they do. Typically around the seven to eight figure turnover business, uh, we we kind of were working with some startups in the early days, but it's just hard because, you know, they don't have money. And, and as as we've progressed as a business and, and really refined our craft, I feel like what we do adds tremendous value and that obviously has a price tag on it so you know for auntie sheila who runs you know makes candles in her garage to you know charge a lot of money to make a brand it's just not (laughs) the right thing to do yeah but we've also i think there's also value in in kind of referring people you know like we would have you know back in the day we would have said yes to everything like i said earlier we've learned to say no now to things as well but it's also i think you can provide value to People like, you know, if, if someone goes and I'm making up numbers, if, if we charge 50 grand, like I said, we make up numbers, we charge 50 grand to make a brand and someone says, I've got five grand, like, okay, we're not going to take that brief on, but you know, we, we would probably know somebody who might be an established freelancer or a, or a really good student who would be able to add value and make an introduction that way. So I think as long as you can provide value, there's still, that, that's still the right thing to do. I think I've gone off topic a little bit, but that's, that's kind of essential electric and analog as a whole. Yeah, cool. And in terms of the working environment, something that I noticed that you, you talked about at Pause Fest was this concept of a 90-minute focus sprint. And it's something that you, you know, you've talked in the past about being really sort of interested in productivity. Take me through that. I'd love to know how that works. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a constant work in progress in all honesty and, you know, continually kind of experimenting with things. There's always kind of some YouTuber who comes out with a new hack and more often than not, it's, a, it's attached to a product that you've got to pay 10 bucks a month for. So I'm trying <laughs> to avoid those ones. But you know, for me, I felt like for a long time I was doing like working stupid hours. Like, and I think, you know, anyone who runs a business working nine to five is not a way to succeed in running your own company. But, you know, I, I got to a point where I felt like I was working such silly hours and I didn't really have much to show for it. So I just started kind of, I mean, look, the catalyst for me was I had after what we spoke about earlier, you know, the last 12 months we had towards kind of September time last year, I, I experienced full burnout. I was just burning the candle at both ends. I was I was not sleeping properly. You know, when I was sleeping, it wasn't very good sleep. I was, in hindsight, I was going to the pub with the boys after work and having a drink and thinking that would like drown my sorrows and make it all good. 
my dad was an alcoholic. He committed suicide when I was 11. And back then, I think, you know, there was no Google and there was no kind of awareness around mental health. So I don't, I always think in the back of my mind, I don't know if anything like that is, is genetic or runs in the family. I, I certainly hope not, but I'm, I've certainly become more conscious of it the last few years. And, you know, growing up as a kid, I was always, I never really had a good relationship with alcohol. I'd always get super emotional and get into fights with people and just be a dick. So it took me a long time, like probably a bit too late on in life to realize like alcohol and me are not very good friends. So I'd, I'd done it before, like a few years ago, I'd kind of cut alcohol out for two years and then realized it was very antisocial. So started like having a drink every now and again, just to be sociable. But, you know, having burnout and coming out the, the other side of that, it just kind of made me really evaluate what we're doing. And, and I think, you know, like I said in the talk, like I'd always read books and like heard people talking about finding your purpose. And I never really understood what it meant. Like I was, I, I kind of got it, but I was like, I didn't know really know what my purpose was. So, you know, going through that, I guess that journey of, of experiencing burnout and, you know, you can call it a, whatever you want to break down or, or like, you know, whatever you want to call it. Like it's, it makes you kind of really, really evaluate things. So I started thinking about like, you know, how, how can I find my purpose? What is my purpose? And I started doing stuff like journaling because I actually went to go see a GP and the GP prescribed me some happy pills. And I walked out of there going, I don't want to be reliant on medication to put a smile on my face. So I didn't do that. And I know some people will disagree with that and that's cool. But I, kind of went home and I just started researching like coping mechanisms of how to deal with burnout. And, you know, like to give some perspective, like I, we have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. My wife's a full-time mom, which is the, you know, the hardest job in the world, but we're essentially a single income family. So I feel like a bit of pressure. And I think back then, you know, being in a shitty headspace with kind of a, a divorce from a business partner, all that kind of stuff, it all just added up and I, I just wasn't in a good space. So I started journaling and then I started putting, being a visual person, putting that into a bit of a keynote presentation. And then I sent it to a couple of friends who are like, you know, pretty established creators and keynote speakers and said, hey, what do you think? And there was just some really positive feedback around it. So I started kind of, I did a, a speaker profile and sent it out to a few conferences and, you know, got a couple of responses. And then, um, yeah, George at Pause Fest was like, hey, we've got a gap on the stage. Like, we'd love to have you on here. So I did my first keynote back in Feb and was absolutely shitting my pants in the weeks and days <laughs> leading up to it. But got on stage and just pretended there was nobody there and just spoke and, and kind of obviously designed the presentation, but just kind of rambled a little bit. And it, it kind of like, yeah, for me, like finding your purpose is everything and, and going through I think the burnout, I guess, that you go through, it kind of stop and you just start thinking like, how, why am I feeling like this? And so for me, I started journaling a bunch of things and it went back to like, surprise, surprise, my dad dying when I was super young. And it just made me think like, you know, what happened there? You know, when we were young, like I grew up in England, we were, my dad was really wealthy. He was a, we had a successful business that imported and exported stainless steel. We had, Jaguars and Mercedes and holiday houses in Spain and the Cotswolds and speedboats and all that kind of stuff. And when he died, he was declared bankrupt, which to this day, nobody in my family can understand. But it made me just start questioning, like doing what I do, how can I add value and prevent that from happening? Because, you know, what my little brother and I have gone through because of that, like it's not a nice thing to go through as a kid, you know, like you're the only kid who's, you know, doesn't have a dad and you have all these daddy issues growing up and it does affect you as a human being. So it kind of made me think about like, you know, we create brands, there's people out there that run businesses that are under pressure that don't have the know-how or the experience of building a brand that resonates on an emotional level. So 
that became like my purpose. Like how can doing what we do, like creating brands and design, like, you know, getting the creative um, voice of a, of a company and a brand in a really good place that, you know, allows you as a business owner to wake up in the morning, feel excited to get into work, have, a, you know, a legion of fans and, you know, a diehard fan base of people that really want to buy your product. And, you know, if we can provide that and prevent somebody else from doing what my, what my own dad did because of the pressure of running a business, then that's a huge, huge win for me, you know? And, um, so I bucketed into two purposes. Now I'm now a dad of my own. My little girl Frankie's four. Uh, my son Lex is two. You know, and the thought of them growing up without a dad because something happens to me is another thing. So it made me kind of like reevaluate the whole way I operate on a day-to-day basis. And I went super, super micro into like almost every hour. Like, what do I spend? And you know, growing up as a creative in agencies, you're always told to fill out timesheets. And uh, I think any designer will tell you timesheets are the most boring things to do <laughs> as a creative person. Yeah. And I never, I fought it as a, as a junior creative. Like I remember traffic managers coming up, like we had this woman named Tessa. She was like, where's your timesheet? I was like, <laughs> I don't do them. I hate them not doing it. And I just, I was like the worst person to manage ever. But then it started making me think like, all right, like I've actually got to track my time. So I kind of like reinvented my day, so to speak. So I, I've cut alcohol out completely. I haven't had a drink since September. I wake up at 4.30 a.m. every morning. I try and get some exercise done. I Like I'd, I would normally go for a surf, but um, I've, I've just been super busy recently. So I've probably not been surfing as much as I should have. But I'll do like a 20-minute hit session, like a high-intensity interval yep. training session. There's a guy named Joe Wicks in England, the body coach. And check him out, man. He's, he's amazing. Like he does his YouTube channel has got all this free content. It's like 15 minute interval sessions where you, you know, like 30 seconds of burpees or press ups or sit ups as much as you can, then 30 second break. And then you do it again and you do it. And 15 minutes in the grander scheme of things is not a lot of time. But, you know, if you can do that, the next thing to do after that is, is what I've, is, is having a shower, but then have a cold shower at the end. And that's yeah, kind of like yeah. the Wim Hof stuff, you know, yeah. the, the Iceman stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. Like it's really uncomfortable. It's really hard. And then after you've done it, you just feel like this amazing sense of accomplishment that you've achieved something. And I was reading recently, it's actually like it increases white blood cell circulation. It actually fends off like things like colds and all that kind of stuff. So the cold shower thing after doing a bit of intensive exercise is really helpful. Mate, don't say that. Bloody Donald Trump will start spruiking it as a, a cure for COVID. Oh, dude, yeah, <laughs> I'm man. Just kidding. Boy, don't um, get me started on uh, that guy. No, um, the cold showers are awesome. Like I, I was doing that after reading that as well. But I live in an apartment building. Our, our shower doesn't actually get that cold. So I was just doing like this lukewarm oh, thing. No it wasn't way. actually that hard. Yeah. So I was like, I started doing it. And I'm like, nah, I think I need to be somewhere where like the water actually is cold. But um, yes. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> you know, like um, it's funny because like a lot of like, like I keep talking about surfing because I'm just a fan of the sport but like a lot of the top pros are like doing ice baths at the moment and that kind of thing like a lot of a lot of elite athletes do that but i guess the cold shower is um you know the non-athletes version of having an ice bath which i think is <laughs> there's something in it you know completely and then yeah like I'm, I'm genuinely i'm sitting at my desk by like kind of 6 6 30 with a coffee in my hand getting my day started and and i found initially like you know i write a to-do list you know, with my stuff to do for the day and, and how that used to be where there'd be 19 things on my to-do list. And it just became like absolutely overwhelming. Like I just sit there and be like, Oh my God, like how do I prioritize what to do? And like, so I, I recently discovered a program called notion, which is, um, uh, yeah. it's kind of like, yeah, it's awesome, man. Like our you, guys just had a, a tutorial last night from a friend on notion. Yeah, no way. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's mad. Like it's so customizable. There's so many things you can use it for, but, um, I use it to keep notes of like, 
meetings and stuff, but I also use it for my to-do list every day. So what I do is I create like on a Sunday night, I create like the 20 things that have to be done that week. And then I'll go and type them out on, on like a, like a Kanban project board, like, you, you know, which it would normally be like, haven't started about to start on working on complete or whatever that might be or need help. Um, but I've done that on, as a weekly basis. So I try and keep it to three things a day and I do 90 minute focus sprints where I lock the doors to the studio. I turn off notifications on my phone. I put headphones on just so no one interrupts me because that's the, you know, headphones are the universal sign for please fuck off and leave me alone because I'm really busy and don't want to be interrupted. And then, yeah, just doing a 90-minute focus sprint with a timer on your phone. You can get so much more work done. And then after that 90-minute sprint, you know, going for a quick walk or, you know, going up and making a cup of tea or a coffee or getting a snack or whatever it might be. You know, obviously we're working from home, so I get to go and see the kids for 10, 15 minutes and make a cup of tea for my wife and then no, um, come back I'm, and do it again. And I love that. I love that idea of breaking it up like yeah, that and only having it's sort of three things, three things to tackle. I think that's really cool. Well, that's the thing, man. And what happens is you're doing a 90-minute sprint, you kind of force yourself to get it done with a view of like, I can't go to bed tonight until these three things are done. And look, sometimes it's one thing, you know, because you know that that thing, you're never going to be able to get three of them done in a day. But if you can just stick to that plan that you do at the beginning of the week, you kind of know, you know, every day what you have to do. And then, and then you could go even more micro on that. So there was, um, I listened to a podcast the other day with a guy who was talking about like color coding his calendar. And it's, this is amazing. Like, I don't, I, like, I don't know if you, I, I hope you find this as fascinating as I do because this is like a game changer. But so his whole thing is like, there's, there's like, you can break your calendar. So I live and die by my Google calendar, like everything yeah. in there, like it's, yeah. it's to the minute. Like, and what I've started to do like with the 90 minute sprints is go like, all right, at 7 a.m. on Wednesday, I'm starting this 90 minute sprint till 8.30. So I've got to get that done. Then it's like 7.45, I'm going to do the next thing. And like, but what this guy's, I can't remember his name. It's really annoying. But what his thing was, you color code it. So I've kind of taken it as like, I've kind of amended it a little bit, but it's like essentially you, there's there's five things that, that are different colors in your calendar. So number one is today's revenue. So that's anything we get paid to do. So that's sales, delivery, client servicing, the day-to-day marketing of the business. Like, like the view is that that should be 70 to 80% of your day and your week. Um, the next thing down is strategic elements to future-proof your business. So things like partnerships and pitches and doing your creds deck and some training or like you know the you know the working on the business not in the business thing yeah that needs to be around the 20 percent mark and then there's a bunch of like that our color code is blue and then the color code is red is, is business support task which should be zero to ten percent most of it should be outsourced so that's stuff like office management and it and legal and accounting and finance and compliance and all that kind of boring stuff that you can just get someone else to do it like yeah. a, an accountant or a bookkeeper or a spouse or intern or whoever that might be um and then uh, yellow I use for travel if I'm going to talk at a conference or whatever that might be or going away to see something. And then there's obviously uh, some personal stuff in there, which I use as a, kind of a dark gray. So what that allows <laughs> you to do is you can kind of have a holistic view of your calendar, like, you know, the week before and go like, there's not enough green in there. I need to be doing more green stuff. That's today's revenue. That means, you know, you're doing more sales calls or you're speaking to clients more or getting on the phone. And it's just a really interesting way to kind of divide your time up because, you know, I was going through... You know, a few months ago, a couple of years ago, like I was going through times where I was just, I was just busy, busy, you know, like everyone gets busy, busy on doing the the stuff that just doesn't give you a return. And it really yeah. is the 80, 20 rule, you know, like if you can refine the bit of the, the bit, the little bit of all that stuff you do that and go deep on that, you, like, you get such a bigger benefit out of it at the other end in terms of getting stuff done. 
Man, I think that's brilliant. I have to find that link and send, try to create something. I'll send something. you a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it. try to create <laughs> something that works here for us. But no, I really like that. On podcasts and books, what are some of the things that you love listening to or in such some of the books that you love reading? Yeah, for sure. Podcasts, I have uh, got massive value out of Chris Doe in the future. I think what those guys do is insane. I have, have massive, massive respect for what they're doing. I listen to, you know, there's, there's guys out of the UK called Creative Rebels. I don't know if you've heard of those guys. They're really, no. really cool. Look at them. They're actually, they run, um, I forget the name of their business, but they're essentially like graffiti artists. And they've started this um, podcast called Creative Rebels, which is really awesome. I love Lewis Howes. He's got the School of Greatness, which is epic. Gary Vaynerchuk, I'm a fan of. There's one called The Business of Hype by Jeff Staple in New York, which I think is run by Hype Beast. Yeah, there's heaps, man. There's so many good podcasts. How I Built This by Guy Raz is amazing. The Jake and Jonathan Show by Jonathan Courtney and Jake Knapp, who are big design sprint advocates. They run a, an agency in Berlin called AJ and Smart. I love The Entrepreneurs by Monocle. There's quite a few, man. Like My podcast app is overwhelmed. <laughs> you have, stuff to, to, you have to, to send a screenshot and we'll add it to the notes. I will. I will. And then on the books... I feel like there's a few books that have changed my life. Like Richard Branson's Losing My Virginity, his autobiography was one of the first books I read as a 16-year-old and it really changed the way I kind of view things. There's a book by John Kehoe called Mind Power, which was written, I think, in the 80s or 90s. But um, it's all about like, you know, techniques to like visualizations and affirmations and all that kind of stuff to enhance your mind. And essentially his his whole thing is, he says consciousness creates reality and you create consciousness. So consciousness being what you're actively thinking about and rehearsing in your head. You know, his view is that those things can create actual atoms, those thoughts that create real life things to happen in real life. So I'm a huge fan of that. And then just autobiography stuff like Yvonne Schoenard's Let My People Go Surfing, the guy who started Patagonia, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. We did something on, on LinkedIn and Instagram a few weeks ago called 20 Books to Read in 2020. So I'll, I'll send you that because it's, oh, awesome. um, it's got some amazing books in there. Yeah, great. And Matt, to wrap this up, I mean, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's been awesome. But um, we ask a few questions as a wrap-up. So firstly, who's someone remarkable that we should speak to that you know? Yeah, I think you should talk to a very good friend of mine named Craig Parsons. He lives in Cape Town in South Africa. It's funny, we grew up surfing together. He runs Parsons? The branding Parsons agency? Branding, yeah. Yeah. Cape Town, yeah, that's him. He was meant to come, at, I think him. he's meant we to know- come out to the design yeah, yeah, conference. Yeah, conference. Yeah, he's booked in. I think that might be... I was chatting to Maddie the other day. I think that might be done remotely or virtually or somehow. I'm not sure exactly. But, but yeah, he was booked to speak. But, I mean, I've known Craig since we were like 11, 12 years old. Like we grew wow. up serving together in the same teams. And, um, yeah, like, I mean, I haven't – it's hard. I think we're both living parallel lives. We both run creative businesses. We both run branding agencies. We both have two young kids and married and all that kind of stuff. But just watching him from afar and the, the kind of work that they're producing as a, as a branding student at the moment is incredible. Um, but I think he'd definitely stuff. be worth having a chat with. Yeah, he's a, yeah. he's a good human being, so I'd be happy to make an intro. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Mate, what's your favorite quote or the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Easy. So one of my best friends is a guy named Carl Addy. He's a creative director at The Mill in London. He worked at ICO, International Concept Organization, the, the agency I worked at in my first job out of school. So, And my best friend and my best friend's older brother and, and Carl were like kind of best friends. So I've grown up with Carl. 
since we were kids, we used to go on holidays to the Drakensberg and stuff like that. But uh, he came to stay with us. He was speaking at semi-permanent a few years ago and he came to stay with us. And I remember him saying, like I said to him, oh man, like, aren't you worried about getting up and speaking in front of thousands of people? And he looked at me without blinking and he just looked at me and he said, I live my life by this rule. And he says, stupider people have done more with less. And it's just <laughs> something that's like, it, I think it's like the best thing I've ever heard. Like it's <laughs> it's so true. And if you're ever faced with a, with a, a situation where you start doubting yourself, like I, I always just kind of repeat that back to myself and it makes it feel achievable. That, that's great. And finally, to wrap it all up, where can people learn more about you? Where should we direct them? Yeah, thanks for asking. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, Peter Brennan. Our website is eanda.cc. So eanda.cc. So um, yeah, we're kind of up in our Instagram game for the agency at the moment as well. If you want to see how cute my kids are and how beautiful my wife is and how awesome my bulldog puppy is, then my personal <laughs> Instagram is Mr. Peter Brennan. So follow me on that. But yeah, I mean, I'm pretty responsive on both of our Instagram platforms and LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, Pete, thanks so much for taking the time today. I've really enjoyed it, mate. And there's been, some, I think, some great takeaways for both designers but people in the business space. So thanks, man. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for the platform and uh, super grateful for your time as well. Thank you. Okay, so that was meant to be the end of the episode. However, Pete and I stayed on and just kept talking about the parallels between our businesses. After about 20 minutes, we thought we should hit record. So in the next section, we discuss something that's quite unconventional for founders of branding firms to say. Plus, we talk about the importance of being selective with clients and being willing to have tough conversations. Also, the importance of word of mouth referrals for new business. Enjoy. We talk a lot about the importance of brand, but you know, like the work that we do, but how important do you reckon it is for the clients to have a great business for us to start with? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting conversation um, to have, and I had this with a friend of mine who lives in in the states. His name's Gavin Dogan. He's a, um, a successful entrepreneur, and he uh, he said something to me the other day. We I sent him something to kind of look at and say, "Hey, what do you think of this brand?" and and he uh, he kind of said something that really threw me. He was like, uh, you know, he said it's not the brand's not so important. He said it's it's your product number one. Uh, he said it's how you market that product number two and then brand he sees as number three uh, and this is someone who's involved in a, a handful of businesses that are all quite successful uh, they all do have pretty pretty unique and, and, and impressive brands so he runs a, a menswear store in Venice Beach called General Admission he runs a, um, I think he's an investor and a, and a founder in a few companies like Garrett Light which is an eyewear range um, Braindead is a clothing company um, but it's it, it kind of like what he said in that sentence kind of really threw me and it just made me realize you know like um, you know, you could put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's like, it's an important thing to consider because, you know, how do you measure the important, like your success as someone who creates, creates brands? How do you measure that success? And there's a few levers that you can pull up and down and like people like Chris Doe and those guys talk about this quite a lot. But, you know, at the end of the day, like if your, if your product is not good, it doesn't really matter what, how good this brand is because people are going to have it, you know, try it for the first time, not enjoy it. And no matter what your brand is saying, whether it's engaging that person or not, if it's, if they're not buying into the product because it doesn't do what they wanted it to do or taste like they want it to taste, it's going to be a bit of an uphill struggle. So, um, you know, that conversation with him, yeah, it really kind of, it made me think about the type of clients we Completely. take on. You know, we had, we, yeah, like we, we had a client a few months ago who came to us with this kind of idea and they were like, and we're like, mm, like I can see how we could make a really interesting brand around this, but I just didn't buy into the idea. Um, 
and and I think you know as as a as a branding and as a design business is like what, what you and I do. I think there's value in being quite picky and and who you take on as a client. Like, do do we want to go and create a brand for a product that we don't really believe in? Yeah, it's so uh, hard to do. We want so to take, get behind if if and, yeah, and get the team on board on. It is. I mean, it's a luxury that you can sure. have when you've got you know in good when times are good and and when there's a bit of an abundance of work, you can mm. be a lot more picky. And I mean, in the early days, like we've said before, you sort of end up saying yes to everything. But I think as we've gone on and as yep, we've grown like for five years now, I think we've become a lot more disciplined with what work we take on and to us, like, you know, be totally. it the product that the client's selling or the service delivery. Because our hands are, you know, while we like to have a collaborative approach and, and really see, see what's under the hood in the client's business and be able to like, I guess, have an understanding of how they deliver that. At the end of the day, like our job is still external. We're external suppliers. So we can't, while we can help and yep. we can influence and we can recommend, we can't change the way that that's made, that's delivered. So it's still got to be like, you've got to be very careful about the projects that you take on because what's worse, like mm. them being a really good product and it just being undersold, so it's under-promising but over-delivering. Like everyone loves that. Like if you if you mm. go somewhere and like you go to a shitty like a takeaway down the street and it's like you know a Thai takeaway, it looks a bit crap, it looks a bit dodgy, but the food's amazing. Like you'll keep going back it tastes there. Tastes amazing. Whereas like yeah. it, it could thing, be the yeah. coolest, hippest restaurant in Sydney. Look amazing. It's on Instagram. You know, it's got beautiful, yeah. beautiful paint and t- interior, and the food's shit house. You'll never go back again. So it's like yeah, the pieces taste yeah. like shit. Yeah, so exactly. It's like our, totally, our work man, like is only um, good is only valued like if it's an alignment between the level of product or service and then the level of brand otherwise we actually do a disservice to the client because it's like hey we've done a great job but you guys can't deliver on this i think it's such a challenge and i mean it's something that we've we've experienced like we did a we did a rebrand project a few years ago and there was a few warning signs with the client and you know like they were quite a corporate and stuffy business obviously not going to name any names but um but we were doing the the workshop exercise and there was a big team of them and we like we got to this idea of like what's your one word and it's like oh we're inspiring and we're you know quite motivated and stuff like that and then you start looking at they had an app and you start looking at some of the software and you're like guys this is like and then i went and visited their office and it was like they were like packed in like sardines i was like man like you guys, like, you're kidding yourself. Like, there's branding and uh, like surface level design is is yeah, not going to do anything sure. here. Like, this is a this is yeah yeah lip, totally. lipstick on a pig sort of thing. Like, this is not going to yeah. withstand the test of time. And mate, like, if I was in a if I was in a better position, if I was in the position I was in today, I'd be able to go to them and say, look, guys, like, thanks very much for the opportunity, but we're not the right agency for you. But fuck, like you got to live through those situations and and sort of reflect and and take totally. lessons on. But um, yeah, I'd love to be able to go back in time and well, I mean, it's good to do the project and and just get it out sometimes. But you know, to be able to go back and have a tough conversation, yeah, go to be sure. honest, like this could go one or two ways. Like we work together, but these things, like to be honest, you guys need to change these things, or like we'll wrap up here and um, you know, we can <laughs> refund you some of the money or something like that, and. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's that's something that like we've learned to do pretty early on is 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 project plan a, a branding or a design project out to the point where you know, like and, and you know like projects can go off off the rails sometimes in terms of timings because real life gets in the way and clients take longer to get back and miss a deadline and stuff like that. But essentially, like you know, on this day we're handing over to you and we're done. You know what I mean? Because, uh, and, and that's, and, and I think it's really important to do that because, you know, we're not, we're not marketing agencies and people, people who run businesses that aren't, you know, the people that run them who aren't like kind of familiar with how 
a branding agency works, you know, they see creative agencies as a very kind of one size fits all, you know, your creative agency can do everything. I mean, we've had, we've had clients, we've done brand work for and they go, okay, cool. Like when are you going to start doing our Instagram for us? And we're like, what? Like we don't, we don't do that. <laughs> you know, we, we, we make brands and then we, we're not a marketing yeah. agency. So I think it's very important to be able to go like, Hey, you know, we're going to start on this day. These are the milestones that we're going to hit. These are the meetings we're going to have at this time on these days. But on this day, we're going, here we go. Here's a big handover. There's a final invoice being paid. And, of course, we're here to pick, you know, for you to pick our brain and we can help in any way possible. But, you know, essentially when our work does come to an end, we're not a marketing agency whereby we're going to help you market this. We've, we're just creating your brand for you, which is going to provide immense value if we do it properly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I think having those tough conversations, and as you get more experienced in business, and and get more experienced and more comfortable and confident to be able to have those tough conversations, I just think like that's actually when our clients get our best, get the best from us. Is when we're able to. We we did some reflection totally on on the work we did last year, and we we looked at some of the great projects we did, and the ones that we had you know some success with, um, and the ones that delivered a return. And we we looked at the relationships. We're like, what did those ones have in common? And it was the ones that, that what they all had in common was just like brutally honest conversations between us and the founder or the key decision yeah. maker, um, like very amicable, yeah. but at the same time, like willing to pick up the phone if something wasn't right you know, on either side, like they would pull up a, us up on something if, if they felt like we, we'd missed something. Um, but at the same time, we, we would be able to pick, that, pick up the phone, call them and go, look, guys, like, I think we need to spend more time on this or this isn't right or you need to change this and like, have you considered changing this internally? Um, and it was like having that, having that sort of that raw, authentic conversation, and not not just this like, I don't know, this scenario where you're just trying to you're constantly please, like yes sir, thank you sir, like you you just take the order. Um, mm. It's like yeah, yeah. Every totally. idea that the client has and is a great so idea. There's so much value yeah. in that, you know. Oh, completely, like yeah. being able to play yeah. devil's advocate. Totally, and yeah, and there's there's also the view of like you know like you know we 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 grow up being taught that saying you know the customer's always right and it's like that's not that's not always the case like the customer comes to us because they don't know how to create brands the same way that we take our car to get serviced to a mechanic because we don't know how to fix it ourselves like you wouldn't ever take a car to get fixed and then the mechanic's doing what he's got to do and you start telling him hey I mean you might I don't I don't know anything no, about man, mechanics I would, but, I would you know I, I would do. never go and say hey like don't yeah, like don't unscrew that, don't yeah. don't cut that cable, don't do this, don't like you just let them because you don't know what to do. And I think, <laughs> you know, there's 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 immense value in having that conversation with the clients in the early days of going, hey, like there could be a situation where we don't agree with each other and we might butt heads a little bit, and it's never a personal thing, it's just for the greater good of what we're trying to all achieve here for your business, you know, and obviously our outcome as well. We want a favorable outcome for us. We want to create something that succeeds for you and we can get behind and be proud of. So I think having those kind of, you know, like you said, as 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 you're more experienced, those become quite easy to have. But in the early days of my career, like I would battle to have those conversations. Now I have them out the bat because I'm just, I'm, I'm comfortable having them because I know how much value there is in having them. Um, and a client go, hey, I want you to make this blue. It's like, that's the wrong thing to do. And, and you should be able to say that to your client to go like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and this, these are the three reasons yeah, why. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, they'll, you know, they'll appreciate it in the long oh, run. I think, I think so. I mean, like the only reason you have those conversations is because you care and you're coming from a, like an area of expertise. Like if, mm. if you just um, like, if yeah, I don't know, if you just sort of like, let it let it roll and and do nothing it's probably a state of um like apathy it's just like oh, i don't care like path of least resistance yeah. so like yeah it's sort of um i think it's good i think it's like i think it's a mark of um of of a good agency to actually push back on ideas or challenge ideas um not sure. not to be painful but also to like to ask the question because it's 
like you said, taking your car to the mechanic and like, you know, you don't go there and you've diagnosed it and here you go, just fix this, this and this. It's like, it's like jumping on WebMD and yeah. then going to your doctor and going, I need this medication because I've already diagnosed myself. It's like, no, it doesn't yeah. work like that. Exactly. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but I think also in your delivery as well, I think just being really conscious of how you, um, how you deliver that. And that's a skill that I've had to kind of figure out and grow over the years is, um, you know, how to, how to be constructive without coming across as like, I don't know, arrogant or rude or, or just deliver it the wrong way. And um, I think there's, a, I think there's a skill in that as well. I think, you know, you know, it's like it's, it's that saying, like if you get someone to think your idea is their idea, they'll, you'll get oh, it over completely. the line. It's like that, yeah. you know, you kind of, you don't want to be too kind of psychological about it and be like this whole mind game thing. But like, you know, you also don't, what you also don't want to be doing is going like, you know, being offensive where the client goes, you know what, you're actually not a nice human being and I'm not <laughs> going to tell anyone about you guys. I never want to work with you ever again because yeah. you're a dick. So uh, it's, it's good to get that balance. So to that point, like I think as you become an expert in a certain industry or niche, like it really allows you to say from an, you know, from an area of background and you can use a story or a scenario to be able to tell that. Like I, that's something I say to my guys a lot of the time now. I say like we should just talk in stories. Like we should, you know, if someone asks about a situation, it's like, oh, that's a really good, int- uh, really, you know, if someone says, oh, what's the importance of, um, of, you know, customer research or something like that or something like that. You can refer to a case study where you go, oh, we did a rebrand for a trucking company, that, you know, a few years back. And what we did as part of that was interview some of their, their most loyal customers and their favorite sort of key accounts. And one of the things that came out of that was this concept of like, if I book my transport with these guys, I can sleep at night knowing it will arrive. And then what f- flowed from that was a positioning line that we use today, which is delivering confidence. And it was like a line that was born straight out of a conversation, like a direct conversation with um, one of their key accounts. And it's like, what's the, like, we never would have got to that line. Like, yes, we would have got the idea that they're very good. They're very capable. They're very, um, you know, you can have this assurance, this level of assurance, but not that feeling of if I do this, I can sleep at night knowing that I've gone with this company over someone else. And it's like, there's so much that you miss out on if, you know, people say, oh, we don't need to do, we don't need to do research. And it's like, I don't want to sit in a focus group. I don't want to do like that sort of stuff. I'm not going to do like lots of surveys and get people to review our work. But I do want to pick up the phone and speak to a few of your staff if we're doing a rebrand. I do want to speak to some of your like best clients because the stuff that comes out of that is so, so important. And it's shit that you guys don't have in your head. Like you, you guys is in the client, like the five people in the workshop, like, they, they've got a, a view on something, but their staff might have a completely different perspective. And, and yeah, and those, and, the, and those interviews at the same time, like the fact that the fact, the sheer fact that you're sitting in the room asking someone for their opinion on, on a brand or a company immediately when they see the new brand, they have so much more buy-in because they can feel, they feel like they've contributed. So it's like, it's so, there's so like out, we have a process and some people say, Oh, can you, Again, like it's, you know, it's the client pushing back on the client, like client like, oh, can we skip this bit? Can we skip that bit? It's like, well, we have a, we have an approach. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know, like you have a, you have a process. Dude, we, we get yeah. it all the time, man. Like our, our discovery and research is the longest part of our six step yeah. process. Like it's, um, 
and we get it all the time. Like, oh, you don't need to do the research. We'll just give you like a bunch of documents and you'll get to understand what we do. And I was like, yeah. no, like the research is the, is the foundation of where this thing's going to come from. Like if we, if we get this thing wrong, like you guys, I always use like a building analogy. You know, you guys, you're talking about what curtains you want to put up and what cushions you want to have, but you haven't even like put the walls and the, and the yeah. floor down yet. Like we've got to get this stuff super solid and in a good place before we start talking about color palettes and yeah. topography. Like it's got to stand for something. So yeah, important conversations to have for sure Matt, and another one how important are referrals for you and uh and how do you go about getting more because i've got a, a view on our business but i mean for us like we've we're five years and our whole th- our whole a complete sort of history is built on word of mouth referrals we've got a few little things through through the website and through you know linkedin or something like that but for you like is word of mouth the most powerful one it absolutely is. And I think it's something that we haven't really taken that seriously in terms of having an actual structure of how we deliver that um, and get clients to do it. Um, it's something that I've been very conscious of for the last few months. And it's something we're kind of, we're really looking at. But I mean, in terms of our revenue streams and where they come from, I reckon we're about 80% word of mouth and referrals. So um, yeah, it's so important. And, and you know what it does? It just makes sure that you 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 kind of do a good job and and i know like saying that now is like yeah of course we do a good (laughs) job but you can take that even further back to the conversation we're having earlier about like um you know is this the right client for me do i believe in this product enough because if i don't believe in the product enough i'm probably not going to be into this business into this project as much as i should be which means the brand isn't going to be as effective and if you don't believe in the product it's probably not going to be a success anyway and then that person's not going to give you a referral because essentially that that whole thing's flopped so um I think there's multi layers and different facets to that, um, to getting a referral. But essentially, like the flow is like, you know, when that referral comes in the door initially, like qualify it properly, make sure it's a product that we believe in, that we we think is going to work, and we think we can genuinely add value to, um, and then build something of value, and then deliver that, and then you know you'll you'll be you won't have any issues getting referrals. It's it's um it's the most important way to get business for us. Yeah, at the moment. completely. I mean that's. That's been our thing for for years. Like we've we've got a little bit of stuff, like I said, through through other streams. But um, essentially, what we started mm. to do more of was actually say no to certain referrals. So we used to be a lot more a lot yeah. more selective with the new projects that we took on because essentially, like you get yeah. more of what you put out. And I've had this mantra in my yeah. head for the last few years now of just like do good work, show good work, get good work. And it was essentially like, mm, like yeah, we've got to do it. good work. It's at the end of the day, like we're only as good as the work that we do. If, if we're not delivering value, then, then yeah. like no, no Instagram totally. strategy, no, no blog. There's no thing like, <laughs> yeah. there's no thing that's right. going to solve that. Like if it's, if we don't have real case studies of, of businesses who have done well through the, through the service we've delivered, then, then nothing else matters. And then it's about showing that work. So only showing yeah. the work that you want to get more of. Like don't, you know, yeah, you might have done a really cool cafe or you might have done a really cool, I don't know, mm. whatever type of business. But unless you want to get more of those types of products or services, don't profile it. Even if it's like, even if it's really cool, really niche, like if you don't want another one of those, don't show it because <laughs> chances yeah. are you will. And then it's about just getting it. And then like, and then make, actually asking for the referral. It's amazing. Like, after a good project, how, how easy it is to say to a client, like, hey, it's been awesome working with you. We really like we really like working with you. Who's someone else that you know that you think could benefit from our services? And the, the, people love people love connecting. I've I, I found in business, like, it's actually, I, I love it as well. Like, I love introducing a good supplier to a business and having no involvement. 
Yeah, it's like, the best. I, I, you know, I used yeah, to hundred percent. We used to have yeah. this thing like where I used to work with like you want to be the gatekeeper and you want to manage everything. Like these days, if I know good people, I'd much rather them just connect without me being involved. Like I like I like that I you know may have made that introduction, but at the end of the day, if both of those people are happy with that situation, that's like a massive win. And I can, um, I can just like leave and not have to be any, you know, be responsible about laughter. Like it's just Dude, like, there you go. You yeah. guys, you guys are cool. Couldn't yeah. agree more. It's like, I don't, I don't want to like clip the ticket yeah. or something like that. I just think that's so like, it's just. <laughs> Dude, it's so, it's so funny you say that. Cause we've, we've actually, there's so many parallels between your business and our business. Like it's, um, yeah, we, we were the same, like, you know, early days, like, yes, we'd say yes to everything. And then like, you know, someone came in and wanted some SEO work done. We'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll get our SEO guy. He's <laughs> like a friend of ours to do it, but we're going to put some margin on it. It's just like, fuck. Now it's like, you know, I had a client phone yesterday. He's like, hey, I need, I got, I think he said something like, I've got 25,000 email addresses and I need to send them all an email and, um, you know, get them to create a profile on my, on my website. And I'm like, initial reaction was like, I could do that. <laughs> like we could charge this guy a couple of grand. And then I was like, what am I thinking? Like you kind of have to slap yourself out of it. And I got a guy who's got like a, an email, like newsletter company essentially. Yeah. And I just phoned him up, referred it to him, introduced on the phone. He thinks I'm a hero. The client thinks I'm a hero. They're going to bring me more Completely. work. They Like it's, it's that kind of approach. Just like providing value that you can provide. And if you can't provide value, who do you know in your network that you can introduce to make that person happy because it's just going to make you a hero at the end of it you know and the ones where you don't have complete trust like just don't refer like i I used to be like torn of like someone like oh do you know someone who can do this do you know you know and i'd be like i'd be like trying Mm. to find that person then i'd be like look at you know i you know yes i know these people but i can't vouch for their work so i'd rather not like it's like look i I know these people yeah i don't know or just putting a caveat to it like hey i know these guys i think they're pretty cool but i haven't used them feel free to check them out but it's not like I'm not, I'm not endorsing this. Whereas other ones are like stand behind and be like, go yeah. talk to the, like, we've got a signage guy up here that we work with so many projects and he's done like amazing. We did a gin distillery up in um, the Sunshine Coast and he, I just connected them directly and they did okay. all their like uh, location signage with him. And it's like, I know I can give them his number, give them Justin's number and he'll just like yeah. smash it out of the park. Like he designed and built a LED Love sign it. for our wedding. Uh, like a neon, no like a way, custom neon man. sign. Like he's just a legend. Like he'll just, if he says, he's one of those guys that if he's like, if he says he'll do it, he'll do it and he'll do it really well. But if he can't do it, he'll tell you early on. I actually need a, I need a neon, a oh, neon man. light. I'll give you like, Justin's could, details. Could you he's, me? He's, I'm dead he's, serious. He's just amazing. Yeah, love but, um, but yeah, he's just like, awesome. I just love people who, uh, those people or those businesses that just make your life easier because you can refer them work and, yeah. and you know they're going to do it right. <laughs> And like, it's just For sure. it's perfect. And then you look like a legend because you made the yeah, introduction. Yeah, and you're just you know, like, yeah, cool. Like, of course. And then like, oh, it was yeah, really yeah. good. I'm like, yeah, of course it was really good. Like I wouldn't have referred if it wasn't going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> like it shouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Someone Remarkable. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your network. To support us, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. To learn more about us or the guests on this show, visit dsrb.com.au slash podcast. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. We hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.